morning to you all again. Good to be with you. There are moments, uh, if you would please turn with me actually to Mark chapter 14. There There are moments in a nation's history that are insignificant. They're small. They're unimportant in the grand scheme. Uh, They might catch some attention for a little while, but then they're forgotten. Uh, Maybe bringing this to your memory, you might not have even heard of it at all, but a couple years ago I was listening to the vice presidential debate over the radio, and uh, little did I know that there was something that was going on that I, I couldn't see. Uh, the next day I saw the news and apparently there was a fly that was buzzing around and it landed on Mike's Pen- Mike Pence's head right in the middle of the debate. Oh, and people were just dying. They were laughing. They were writing about it. You know, pretty fly for a white guy. You know, they were making all sorts of jokes about this silly fly. Well, that's, that's a pretty insignificant kind of thing. Uh, this might have been the first time you thought about it since then or maybe this is news to you. The point is it's, it's not important. We won't be talking about it in 10 years from now, in, in the history of our nation, that's really nothing. On the other hand, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating the 4th of July. And we're not celebrating it because the 4th of July is inherently better than the 3rd of July or the 2nd of July. No, we're, we're celebrating it because on the 4th of July, 246 years ago, the Declaration of Independence was signed. It is a monumental moment in the nation of our history, the the history of our nation. In many ways, it's the point of inception for our nation. It shapes everything that follows after it. So that's why we're celebrating it. We're going to go on celebrating it. In the history of the nation of Israel, we find a moment that changes everything. A moment in which, after that point, everything for the nation is different. It's a key defining moment for the nation. In fact, it's some ways the the start, a new start for the nation of Israel. Uh, That moment is the Passover. Once the Passover, the first Passover, takes place, nothing's the same for Israel afterwards. In fact, uh, it was so monumental that God said... The month that this is taking place in, that's your new first month of the year. You know, that's, that's your new January, if we were thinking about it by our calendar. Uh, it reshapes everything. And although the Jewish people didn't always celebrate it the way it should have been in the generations following, it was celebrated. In fact, we find in the New Testament that the Passover is still being celebrated. And in our passage this morning, uh, we're seeing that Jesus will be celebrating it with his disciples, and it will be an important Passover. So let's pick up there uh, in Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 12 and read down through verse 21. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat this Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city. 
and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, it would be better for that man if he had not been born. Let's pray. Father, your word is faithful and true because you, O God, are faithful and true. There is not a word that comes from your mouth and falls to the ground. Everything you say comes to pass. Everything you promise is fulfilled. Lord, I pray that you would help us as your people to wait for you in faith. Pray that you would help us to keep our hope in you and in what you are doing for us. Thank you for sending your son. Pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning. More than just to get our minds around it, Lord, I pray that you transform our hearts through that understanding. You conform us to the image of your Son, and that you would give us your joy. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the main things we'll see this morning as we're looking at this text is that Jesus celebrates the Passover in anticipation of becoming the Passover lamb. He celebrates it in anticipation of becoming the Passover We'll look at Jesus and the Passover first in verses 12 to 16, and then in the rest of the passage we'll see Jesus and his betrayer. Verse 12 opens up with a timestamp here. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So we're opening up on the Passover here. Now there's been some discussion over the timing of this event. Is it on Wednesday or is it on Thursday? You remember Palm Sunday? It's on Sunday. Monday, Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. He comes back on Tuesday, finds the fig tree wither that he'd cursed the previous day. He teaches in the temple. He interacts. There's debate. Then uh, he goes out of Jerusalem that evening. We have the Olivet Discourse Tuesday night. And then there's some question. What happens Wednesday? What happens Thursday? And as we try to fit together the passages of the Gospels and how they, they work together, trying to understand what these days are, there has been some debate. Are the events that I just read about here, are they on Wednesday or are they on Thursday? Uh, Now that might not seem like a very important discussion, and I don't want to take up too much time on it this morning, but there's a couple things that go into why people talk about that. Um, First, some have questioned if Jesus dies on Friday, so the next day after these events, then he's in the tomb Friday before sundown. He's in the tomb Saturday, and then he rises again Sunday. Uh, Jesus says in places like Matthew twelve forty that he will be in the tomb three days and three nights. Well, if you do the math on that, that's like a day and a half and a couple nights. So how does that work out in that scheme? So that's one question. I, I do think there are good answers to that, and I'll share those in a moment. Uh, another question, why people wonder whether this is Wednesday or Thursday uh, some will, who are skeptical of the Bible will say, 
Well, John is clearly saying that this all happens on Wednesday, and Mark says that it's happening on Thursday, and there's contradiction in the Bible, and well, the Bible is just not true. The gospel writers, they're just, they're just making things up as they go, or they, they, there's all sorts of attacks that come on the Bible at that. Um, and I don't believe that there is a contradiction here at all. In fact, I don't believe there are any contradictions in the Bible itself. Uh, God, who has inspired his word, has seen to it that there are no real contradictions in his word. The God who is eternally true, ultimately true, speaks no words that are untrue. I think we should come with eyes of faith looking for the truth, and if we do that, we'll find it. If we come and look to see how the Bible does work together, not only will we not find contradictions, but we'll see the way that the gospel writers fill out a picture for us. So how I understand this, how I see these working together... Uh, there, there's a few different answers to these questions. So how does it work out that the Passover is taking place on these days? Jesus rises on Sunday. Uh, is Matthew and or Matthew and or excuse me, Mark and John contradicting each other? A couple different answers. One is uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, argued that the Jews from Galilee they celebrated the Passover on Thursday night. Uh, excuse me, uh, Wednesday night. And that the Jews in Jerusalem, pardon me, let me say this differently. The Jews in Galilee celebrated the Passover Thursday night and the Jews in Jerusalem on Friday. Now that's possible. Uh, There's some historical pointers to that. In that case, Jesus and his disciples from Galilee are celebrating on Thursday evening. And then the Passover is still being kept on Friday. Uh, So that's that's one answer. And that may be the the right pointer forward there. I think another good possibility is the fact that although it would seem like John is pointing to the Passover taking place on Friday, I think that that can be read to be taking place on Thursday. Uh, I I think that it's not a stretch of the text to say that uh, John is in fact pointing to the Passover being celebrated Thursday and Jesus crucified Friday. I I really don't think there are any contradictions there. I think it does uh, work out. Uh, How about the question of how is Jesus in the tomb three days and three nights? Uh, I think there, I'll I'll work through this quickly. Uh, There, I think we get back to the Jewish understanding of a day. Uh, We often think about a day starting in the morning, done in the evening. If we want to get technical, we say new day starts at midnight. Jewish understanding... Uh, from the scriptures we see of an understanding of a day actually begins with the evening. When the sun goes down, uh, that is the start of a new day. So, for instance, Genesis 1-5 says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So hear that? Evening and morning. That's the, the time stamp for a day. It starts in the evening, that's the new day, goes through the daytime after that. So, uh, the next step in it, is that often that days are, in the Jewish mindset, are understood in their totality. So if something happens during a day, it's understood for the full day. Uh, So with those two realities together, the fact that Jesus is, I believe, in the tomb on Friday before sun goes down, he's there through Saturday, and into Sunday, rises again on on Sunday, uh, in the Jewish conception of the days, there's no contradiction there. There is no contradiction in the Bible in that. Jesus is in the tomb Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 
Uh, and in that sense, Jesus is in there three days and three nights. I really don't think there are any contradictions there. Uh, there's there's uh, even more answers given there, and I won't, I won't go any farther into it. Uh, but if somebody says, well, the Bible's hopelessly filled with contradictions, uh, often it's, it's a, a lazy reading of the text by people who are looking for contradictions. I think if we think hard and we look through Scripture, uh, we can see that there are not any contradictions there. So if this is, in fact, on Thursday, I believe it is, uh, then this is the Jewish month of Nisan. That's the first month, Nisan 14. Uh, it's the first official day of the Passover. As Mark notes here, it is the day that the Passover lamb is sacrificed. And there are striking similarities in this passage between what we saw when Jesus is in uh, Jericho and he's getting ready for the triumphal entry to go into Jerusalem. He tells his disciples to go find a colt tied, go bring it, and he describes to them in detail what they're going to find. And then they go and they find it exactly the way he says and they bring this donkey. Uh, there's something similar going on here. Uh, Jesus tells them to go in, find a man who's carrying a water jug. Uh, and think about this. He, they're going into a city that is full of people. It's teeming with people. There are hundreds of thousands of people. And he tells them to go in and find a guy carrying a water jug. Well, that's, what are the odds that they're going to find it just the way he says? Jesus is saying it. I think the odds are good. Uh, now, in that day, for the division of labor, men didn't generally carry, carry water jugs. And so it would have stuck out that a man was carrying a water jug. Uh, they, they go and they find this, find it exactly as Jesus says, and they go and they prepare the Passover for Jesus. Um, now, Mark doesn't elaborate as deeply as John does on the theology of the Passover related to Jesus. Um, John includes statements like, uh, we see from John the Baptist in, in John one twenty nine, It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, the sin of the world. There is a clear theology of Jesus as the Lamb of God in John's Gospel. Uh, but just because Mark isn't as explicit as John is doesn't mean that he doesn't teach that as well. In fact, I think he is driving that. It's not an accident that Mark includes this story, includes these details right here. Uh, Jesus has come to Jerusalem on this particular week for a very particular purpose. Uh, this moment is loaded with intentionality. Uh, it's on the very cusp of Jesus offering himself up as our sacrifice to deal with our sin. Uh, there's no way that Mark has recorded all these details and the timing and the events, and yet somehow he has missed the significance of this moment. I think he's certainly pointing us to Christ as our Passover, that he himself is our Passover lamb. Jesus will celebrate the Passover even as he is preparing for himself to be the Passover lamb. Now, if you will recall, just before the first Passover, uh, the Israelites are in a tough situation. If you remember the history there, by that point, God had poured out nine plagues on the Egyptians. Uh, God has called his people to be freed from Egypt, and Pharaoh has resisted. Sometimes Pharaoh said, okay, yeah, you can go. And then he hardens his heart. He says, no, they can't go. This is back and forth. And as this time is going on, the collateral damage is racking up. Now, I have to imagine if God had left it at the ninth plague, things wouldn't have gone good for Israel there. 
Uh, I think that it would have been a, a hard place for Israel to be, but God doesn't take the redemption of his people half-heartedly. Finally, God sends the final plague, the tenth plague. I want to read a little bit of an extended passage here from Exodus chapter 11 and Exodus chapter 12. You can listen. You can turn there if you want to follow along. I want to read the events as this unfolds. This is in Exodus chapter 11, starting in verse 4. I'll read down through part of chapter 12. Exodus 11, 4. And Moses says, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may eat it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let alone, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God threatens this plague and he brings it. God strikes Egypt with a crushing blow because Egypt refuses to allow Israel go. The Lord says that he will pass through Egypt and strike all of the firstborn. When he comes to the houses that are marked by the blood, he will pass over them. The only thing that separated the Israelites from the Egyptians was the blood that covered their doorpost on that night. And so the Lord, his judgment passes over his people and lands in full force on his enemies. And as a result, the people of Israel are ejected out of the land of Egypt. Uh, The Passover event leads directly to the Exodus. 
God delivers his people from his wrath. Then he delivers them from their enemies. And in that, he delivers on his promises that he's made to them. In Christ, we see the fulfillment of the Passover lamb and even the events of the Passover itself. Jesus is our Passover lamb. It's on account of him that the wrath of God passes over us. When we've come to trust in Christ, uh, we then have been covered spiritually uh, with his blood. Uh, The wrath of God passes over us. If you are in Christ this morning, then you can rest in the fact that his wrath does not abide on you. For those who, like Pharaoh, have rejected the word of the Lord, his wrath remains. That's a sobering thought. But for those who are covered in the blood of the Lamb, God's wrath has passed over us. There's an even deeper layer here. Uh, The reason that the wrath of God doesn't fall on his people is that it has fallen on Christ. Uh, Jesus was the lamb that was sacrificed in our place. The wrath of God passes over on us, and it has landed on God's Son on the cross. He has dealt with our sin in Christ so that we can be forgiven. He's paid our debt so that we can be free. Uh, Jesus truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Further, as the Passover event mentioned, it leads directly to the Exodus. Uh, So the event of the cross leads to so much more. Through the death of Jesus, our enemies of Satan and sin have received their death blow. Because of the sinlessness of Jesus' death, uh, the resurrection is not only possible, but it's necessary. Because Jesus was sinless, he would rise from the dead. There was no way that death could hold him. Through faith in Christ and his death and resurrection, we have died to sin. We have risen again with him. On account of the death of Christ, we have died to the dominion of sin. It does not have power over us like it did. Uh, The death of Christ makes our justification possible, that we can be declared righteous. It's the means by which we die to the law, Romans 7. It's the means by which we enter into the new covenant that's been opened up through his blood. The cross is not a bare act by itself. It flows out into all the rich promises of God. All this takes place because Jesus has become our Passover lamb. So there is deep meaning here. As we consider Jesus on this night celebrating the Passover, there's a lot loaded here. Uh, We wonder, though, at this moment, how is it that the lamb will be offered up? Is Jesus going to be led to the slaughter Ignorant of what's taking place? Not at all. Uh, He knows full well how this will take place. And we see that then in verses 17 to 21. It's considered Jesus and his betrayer. Uh, Jesus' disciples, they've prepared for the Passover. And when the evening comes, they go into Jerusalem and they uh, take the Passover together. As they're eating together, Jesus shares with them something that must have put a heavy, heavy cloud in the room. He says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. At that moment, sorrow fills the hearts of Jesus' disciples. Uh, And they must have been somewhat bewildered. They go around asking uh, one after another, are are you talking about me? Uh, The ESV puts it, is it I? You know I love the ESV, but I think the NASB and the NIV get this better here. Uh, Those translations will say something like, surely it is not I, is it? Uh, And in fact, that, that reflects the Greek better. 
the question they ask expects a negative answer. Um, that's why I say I think they're kind of somewhat bewildered. They're saying things like, you know, sure, surely you're not talking about me, right? Uh, I couldn't possibly be the one that you're talking about. Uh, they, they are, I think, dumbfounded. And again, uh, it's not like they're looking sideways over at Judas and saying, uh-huh, somebody's going to betray you. Uh, I don't think they have any idea who this is. They don't know who it is. Uh, Jesus says that the one who eats in the dish with him will betray him. So this is somebody who's very close to Jesus. Uh, this is a betrayal we find here and elsewhere that fulfills prophecies. In John thirteen eighteen, Jesus quotes Psalm 41, 9 uh, at this point. Says, He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. The betrayal of Judas, think about this. It was predicted a thousand years earlier. Psalm 41 is written by David. It's through the life and the confession of David that the psalm is written under the inspiration of the Spirit. Through that, there has been a prophecy about this betrayal that will take place. Jesus goes on and speaks. A uh, pretty shocking word in, in verse 21. It says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Kind of word, that kind of a word takes your breath away. Jesus says that it would be better for him had he never been born. Now, he was going to be born. Uh, he was going to live as a hypocrite and ultimately betray Jesus to his death. But it would have been better for him had he not been born. The judgment awaiting Judas for his sin is so serious and heavy that Jesus says he'd be better off never existing. This is hard for us to get our hearts and minds around, but Jesus said it here. Uh, Even later, after Judas betrays Jesus, although he does have some kind of remorse, he still hasn't repented. Uh, He goes from the sin of handing Jesus over to be murdered to the sin of killing himself. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson points out two striking things that I want to end on here. Uh, In line with what I've already said, we should consider the hard-heartedness of Judas. Even these incredibly harsh words that Jesus says here, I think we're still a call to repentance for Judas. Uh, We see the Old Testament prophets, whether they call to repentance explicitly or not, it is a call. When, When they say God's judgment is coming, there is implied in that, you should repent. You see the book of Jonah. Jonah goes to Nineveh and he preaches to them. He says in is it 40 days, uh, this city will be destroyed. And they repent. And you look back and you say, well, we didn't see anything about Jonah saying that they should repent. I think it's implied that they should repent. And they do. And God spares them. I think even here, as Jesus speaks these, what seem like harsh words, there's a call for Judas to repent. But he won't. He loves his sin. Even in the face of this dire warning, it seems like he doesn't even bat an eye. He won't forsake his sin even at such a great threat. Friends, if you hear my words this morning and you have any secret or cherished sin, I want to invite you to turn from it. It is no secret to God. Reject it before it ensnares you and holds you down so you can't escape. Uh, fool, sin will always make a fool of you. Don't play with it. Second, we all should also see here the, the humble submission of Jesus to the word. Uh, Jesus knows full well that the scriptures predict this. Uh, the truth of scripture is pointing in a direction that is not pleasant for him, to say the least. 
yet he does not use the knowledge of God's word to avoid the hard things that lay ahead of him. Uh, Instead, Jesus walks directly into the things that he knows are going to happen. He willingly plays the part that he knows that he's been called to. Brothers and sisters, do you obey the word even when it calls you to go into hard places? Do you obey it even when it leads you into hard and uncomfortable conversations? Even when the word leads you to say no to things that you might rather say yes to? When God speaks, do you listen? Do you follow his voice and his word? Or do you do things that seem right in your own eyes, even when the scriptures points elsewhere? We can see the humble submission and obedience of Jesus here. I want to say as well, this isn't uh, a pitiful kind of martyrdom. This isn't an empty, sad story here. Uh, Jesus knows that he will be betrayed. He knows that he will be crucified. But as we've been talking about, he knows that he will be crucified and put to death as the Passover lamb. He understands what's going on. He knows that the scriptures say not only that he'll be betrayed, but also that he's going to give his life in exchange for sinners. He knows that he will offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice in order to bring us to God. Jesus was no helpless victim. Even in this most humiliating of time, he was a victor. He would conquer sin and death through this. Through his own sinless death, he would bring new life to us. So brothers and sisters, let's glory in our Passover lamb. Let's delight in the fact that God's wrath has passed over us. Because of what Jesus has done, we are free. We are not under the dominion of sin. We will not dwell eternally under the wrath of God because of what Jesus has done. You know, there is nothing that makes us better inherently than anybody else in this world. We should never have the pride of thinking, well, uh, I'm, I was smarter or I was better in some way or, or any of those things. Uh, Our salvation is of God's grace. It's his mercy. The Israelites were not more righteous than the Egyptians. It was God's mercy. He had set Israel apart as his people, and so he was going to follow his promises through to the end. Brothers and sisters, God's promises are true. He will follow it through to the end. He does not save his people half-heartedly. We can trust in that. We can delight in that. Because of what Christ has done, All of the good things that God has promised will be brought to fulfillment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have unfolded your plan of salvation out over the course of generations, over hundreds and thousands of years. Lord, when we would have forgotten it, uh, you did not forget it. Thank you for sending your son Thank you for sending evangelists out and faithful parents out to share your word. And thank you that we have heard it even uh, today, Lord, in homes and in workplaces. Thank you for your gospel that continues to go forward. Pray that you'd help us to cherish your son, Jesus, and all that you have done for us, God. In Jesus' name.